0: All right, Mark chapter 11. We're in our fourth week in our series called Prayer According to Jesus, and we'll be in Mark 11 now. And I want to encourage you to look at this text with me. Do you remember the show America's Funniest Home Videos? This was like at the advent of the video camera, people would mail in their their uh, VHS tapes or their Super 8 tapes or the, and, and mail them in and they would clip them and put them online and we'd see it. This show has been replaced by just about every website now and every Vine and Instagram and we see these things all the time, these hilarious clips of people and because of the cell phone, we capture nearly everything on video, it seems like. And there are always something that just makes, just things that make you cringe and laugh at the same time. You know, usually it involves a skateboarder because they do just crazy stuff, you know, and they, and they wipe out and you cringe and think, how stupid could that person have been? Or, you know, some diver that's do, executing an incredibly hard dive and at the end she pulls out only to land in a perfect belly flop and, go oh, you cringe or anything with news reporters and animals. I mean, it's, it's, it's dangerous and funny and painful all at the same time. Pain can be funny when it doesn't happen to us, can't it? Uh, I remember one time years ago, uh, we had a pull-down staircase in our attic. I was up in the attic doing something, and, and uh, I was getting ready to come down, uh, and I put my first step to, to go down like a set of stairs on the top, the top rung as I was coming down, And I slipped, and I fell straight out of the attic onto the floor. Boom! All of a sudden, I lay there thinking, oh, this hurts so bad. (laughs) And I come, and everyone runs upstairs, you know, what's wrong, what's wrong? And I'm laying on the floor, and they're laughing at me. (laughs) Really funny. Anyway, I survived. Pain can be funny when it doesn't happen to you or when it doesn't happen to me. But the truth is, we've all experienced pain. And I'm not just talking about physical pain. I'm talking about emotional pain. You and I have all experienced emotional pain where somebody has hurt us. Somebody has brought pain on us, and it's not funny then. And there are times where pain and wrongdoing from someone else are just impossible for us to let go. It's just times when that happens. And so when we pray we often bring this pain with us. We can also label this pain unforgiveness. And Jesus wants you to know today that when you pray, you need to pray with forgiveness in your heart. Well, you say, Dave, that's easier said than done. And you're right. Nevertheless, the way of Jesus, this pathway of living, loving, and giving like Jesus, for those of us who want to make him our rabbi, our teacher, and emulate his life, we must pray with forgiveness in our heart. We're in this series, Prayer According to Jesus. The first week, we're looking at, at the, the teachings of Jesus that surround his, this idea of prayer. Many of these have surrounded the Lord's prayer, but we're looking in particular at these teachings that surround, have surrounded uh, prayer. And the first week, we looked at praying with trust, The second week, we looked at praying with persistence. The third week, we looked at praying with audacity, last week. And today, we're looking at praying with forgiveness. Now, I want you to look at one verse in Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11, verse 25, is we learn to pray with forgiveness in our hearts. Jesus said this, And when you stand praying, that was the traditional Jewish way of prayer, was to stand before God. When you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive him, so that your Father in heaven may forgive your sins. Well, that's hard. That's difficult to pray with forgiveness. I was surprised when I prepared for this message today. Normally, when I, I map out a course of where a series is going, when, I, when we dive into a book or a theme like this, and I dive into the text, I look at the text, and I have some idea how this is going to go. I thought we were going to spend most of our time today on verse 25. But as I looked at this, the context previous to this verse has everything to tell us about why praying with forgiveness is important. And so we're actually going to spend the bulk of our time in the verses preceding this one so that we can understand it and land on how to pray with forgiveness. I mean, it's so important to understand context in the Bible. You can pull a, you can pull a verse out of this Bible and make it say about anything you want. We un, it's weird. We We would never do that with a news article, pull out one phrase and ignore the context of the rest of the article. We would never do that with a book. But we come to the Bible and we just get weird with it. It's like, oh, it's the Bible. It's mystical. And I can make, you know, pull one verse out. We shouldn't do that. We should always read the Bible in the context of what a passage says. Today is no different in this way. Jesus wants us to pray with forgiveness in our hearts and to do this we've got to understand the context. So if we go back way back to the beginning of the of this chapter of Mark chapter 11, we're going to see the context of of Jesus coming in on Palm what would be eventually become known as Palm Sunday on this triumphal entry. He comes down the Mount of Olives through the Kidron Valley up the mount to the Temple Mount in Jerusalem on a donkey and people are laying their branches, and they're singing Hosanna. We just sang that with our worship team today. Hosanna. What a great setup for today's passage. This is this triumphal piece where Jesus is coming in, and they're saying, hey, you're the Messiah. You're the King. This is the moment. Jesus gets off his donkey. He walks into the temple grounds, and in this completely anticlimactic thing, look what happens. Verse 11 of chapter 11. Jesus entered Jerusalem, went to the temple, he looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. He went in, looked around, and went home. <laughs> hey, good to see you. I mean, it's like getting to the Grand Canyon going, okay, saw it. See you later. I mean, Jesus, what is going on here? What is Jesus thinking? Well, the context of what happens tells us exactly what he's thinking. Jesus is looking around at the temple and... What he's saying is it's screaming out to him, something is wrong. Something is wrong with what he sees. Now you have to remember the temple in Jesus' day and in in the Old Testament preceding up to this was a very special place. It's where the kingdom of heaven meant the kingdom of earth. It's where Jews in their worship of the one true God interacted with the holiness and presence of God. It was a very special place. But we look here, and we, and we see that in, in Jerusalem, Jesus and his friends were staying in an outlying community called Bethany. It's about a mile and a half from Jerusalem, which for us is no big deal. For them, when you're walking on foot, a mile and a half is a, is a commute, They were, of course, at the festival of of Passover was beginning, the most holy festival of the year. Jerusalem was packed with people. There was no place for them to stay in Jerusalem. So Jesus had friends. You remember Lazarus and Mary and and Martha? They lived out in Bethany in a a bedroom community, a, a suburb, if it were, of Jerusalem. So they were going back. He looks around the temple. He goes home for the night, goes down the temple mount, through the Kidron Valley, up the Mount of Olives, over the Mount of Olives to the bottom of the hill where Bethany existed, a mile and a half away. The next morning, Jesus gets up, and we have this weird passage. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. So it's morning time now. They're gonna go back to Jerusalem for the festival, and so he's hungry. So seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. What? Why does Jesus hate this tree? Like what did this tree ever do to him? And it's not even the sea, it's not even season for fruit. It's like going to an apple tree in November and going, or you know, or in March. Why are you, you have no apples on you? Well, apples don't grow in March. They grow at the end of the season. Why would Jesus do this? Well, first of all, this brings up many questions. Why does he hate this? A fig tree. A fig is just a a fruit. I don't eat a lot of figs. I don't know. Do we even have figs here? A fig looks like this. Do you have that picture, Jared, of, of figs? That's what a fig looks like. The only fig I know of is fig newtons, and I found out there's not even fig in fig newtons. I, I, who knew? But that's about the only fig I know of, but it's a fruit, and it was very common in, in, around, in and around Jerusalem back in the first century, and this was something you'd go to a fruit tree and pick something up. This was a fig. Now, why, why does Jesus hate this fig tree? Why does he curse it? Well, you have to remember that a curse in biblical terms is not a curse as we think about it. We think of a magical curse that someone acting upon something else curses them and does something bad to them. A curse in biblical days is a biblical pronouncement of judgment. Jesus just leaves this and the disciples are scratching their heads just as you and I are. What's the deal, Jesus? Why do you hate this tree? The story continues. Look what happens next. You see, Jesus had been thinking about the temple. He had walked in. They're going back. He sees this tree, and Mark wants us to know there's more going on here than trees. Jesus is sharing a story with us. Look at verse 15. All right, so the next day he goes, he sees this. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple area again and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves, and he would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. Okay, what's going on here now? Well, Jesus goes into the temple, he sees what's going on there, and he doesn't like it. What's the big deal with money changers? Okay, you have to remember that the temple grounds, there was a building in the middle, and then there was an outside fence that was considered part of the temple. It was open air. And if you were a Jew in the first century, at this time of holy time of year, you were required to bring a spotless animal to offer up and sacrifice to the one true God. But that was difficult for a lot of people. If you've been journeying hundreds of miles to come to Jerusalem for this festival, you're probably not gonna be able to haul this animal in tow and so what they did oftentimes was that, th- that people would make a business by raising animals in and around Jerusalem, and they would bring them into the temple courts and sell them. Now, they had a problem, is that the Jews hated the Romans, and the currency of the day was the Romans that had the Caesar's face on it, and Caesar liked to think that he was God. And so the Jews thought, we can't use these coins to buy these animals, because they got a pagan god on them. And so they thought, we need to do something different. So they had tables where you could exchange your money and buy a special temple currency that then you could then use to go buy a holy animal. And this is the practice. Now, of course, over the years, this practice developed into a whole bunch of dishonest dealing. The exchange rate for temple currency was horrible. And you you can imagine just this, this holy space of God being turned into a, a market, for people to extort each other. And Jesus looks at this and goes, this isn't okay. So he starts driving them out. In fact, he also set up barricades around the temple so that people couldn't walk through. Oftentimes, people bring in goods and service into Jerusalem. The most convenient gate to use was the temple gate. And they could walk through the temple grounds into Jerusalem and just bring, became a pathway. And Jesus says, this isn't okay, And these people, I mean, he's overturning tables and and he's causing a ruckus. And they're going, what do we do? He's a rabbi. We're supposed to respect him. Well, how does this happen? He's causing a ruckus. Why does he have the authority to do this? What Jesus says now, you may not pick up on. But it's really important that the scriptures that he quotes. Look at the text with me. He says in verse 17, and he taught them as as he's causing this ruckus, Is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all the nations? That's a verse right out of Isaiah. There is a focus in Isaiah about the temple being used as a house of prayer for all the nations. That this was not only a holy place of God, but the whole purpose of the temple was not to be inward focused, but to be outward focused for all the nations. Well, the, the Jews had turned this into the exact opposite of what it's supposed to be. And then he quotes Jeremiah 7, verse 11. And this is the most telling one. But you have made it a den of robbers. That's right out of Jeremiah chapter 7. And what's so important about this is what was happening way back in Jeremiah's day before Jesus. In Jeremiah's day, the, in the old temple, the one in Jesus' day had been rebuilt But the first temple, Solomon's temple, the Jews believed superstitiously that the temple grounds was holy, and no matter how bad an enemy was oppressing them, God would never allow the temple to be toppled. And God in Jeremiah is warning them, saying, hey, this isn't a superstitious thing. You've been disobeying me for so long. For centuries, your hearts have been turned against me. I'm finally going to let, as a piece of love and discipline, your nation be toppled by another one. And so in Jeremiah's day, Jeremiah is prophesying that this is going to happen. And the people go, No, 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 we got our lucky rabbit's foot here. We got the temple on our side. This foreign nation's not going to topple us. And of course, the, the nation of Babylon did topple Jerusalem. And the temple was destroyed. And Jesus is quoting this, saying to them, Listen. You superstitiously are holding on to this temple. You've made this thing a mockery. And guess what? This temple is going away because something better is coming. In essence, Jesus is saying this. You've rebuilt this temple into a superstitious, dishonoring game. It's not what God intended. So we see the cursed fig tree, and then we see the cursed temple. And now Mark brings us back to the fig tree again. Look at verse 22. 20. So the, the, uh, the, the chief priests hear Jesus doing this. That makes them hate him all the more. He's disrupting their system that keeps them in power, and they don't like him for this. So when evening came, Jesus went back out to the city, to Bethany, to hang out for the night, to sleep. In the morning, he gets up again to go back to Jerusalem. In the morning, as they went along, the disciples saw the fig tree that Jesus had cursed, that one. It's withered from the roots, People, Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. And Jesus begins this opportunity to talk to him. He says, have faith in God, Jesus answered. I tell you the truth. If anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes what he said will happen, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. So Jesus is talking about as the power of the Savior over the fig tree, he is symbolizing the temple. And I know this because of the system that he uses, Mark uses. He gives us the story about the fig tree. He shows us the temple, he goes back to the fig tree, and he's going to return to the temple. Mark is interlacing these to show us that the fig tree is a symbol of the temple and that Jesus has power over this. And in fact, Jesus is right. This temple is about to be destroyed because in 70 AD, not 40-ish years later, the temple is destroyed by the Romans. It did happen. But Jesus has something more in mind here than just his power as a savior. Jesus has in mind here that the temple is going to be replaced. This is very important for you and I who believe in Jesus Christ and say we're a follower of Jesus to understand. The temple in the Old Testament was a place where heaven met earth. The temple in the New Testament is not a building, but it's you. If you believe in Jesus, if you believe the gospel, if you believe that you are sinless, sinful and hopeless to ever know God on your own, but that Jesus bridged this gap. That Jesus took all the penalty for your sin and he rose from the dead ushering in this new era of God's kingdom power interacting with the kingdom of this world. If you believe this that God sent his holy spirit among you, you are now the temple. And you have the power of God in his temple. I mean, this is crazy what Jesus is talking about. He says, I tell you the truth, verse 23, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and doesn't doubt in his heart, but believes that what he said will happen, it will be done for him. What does Jesus mean by this? Because I've never thrown a mountain into the sea. I mean, maybe you have, but I've never done it. I I don't know that it's actually ever happened. That is, I mean, can you imagine, like, followers of Jesus all over the world? We would have no more mountains left in this world, right? Because <laughs> it would be fun, you know? Hey, whoop, and watch a mountain pick itself up and throw it into the sea. Landscape would look very different. What is Jesus talking about? Jesus is talking about the temple mount. He is again predicting that this temple will be uprooted and through the faith of his followers, God's temple will reside in them. And this is really important. This has everything to do with the kingdom of God being transferred from the temple in Jerusalem to the temple of his followers, his people. So now notice how these four sections line up. Uh, Jared's going to show you some arrows here on the screen. And and so Jesus compares the cursed fig tree, uh, or Mark does, excuse me, the gospel writer, the cursed fig tree with the power of the Savior over the fig tree. So Jesus curses the fig tree. Later on in the story, he comes back and Peter goes, hey, it's dead. Look at that. Then he also compares in this next set of arrows, the cursed temple with the power of his followers to be the temple. This is the whole point of this passage. And it's why I got so sidetracked in preparing to talk about forgiveness, because you and I can't understand forgiveness in prayer unless we understand that we are the temple of the living God because forgiveness is not significant unless you understand this. Now, the whole problem, of course, with this passage is that many Christians come to this passage, and all they read is that if you got enough faith, you can move a mountain. And then this passage becomes all, you can do anything you want. You name it, you claim it. They say, you want to believe you can move a mountain? You just, the only problem is you don't believe enough. Well, apparently, nobody has ever believed enough to actually move a mountain and pick it up. That is not what this is about at all. This is about not having mystical, magical power. This is about becoming the temple of the living God. The temple is gone. But the new temple is where God's spirit lives. And if you don't believe me, we just finished up 1 Corinthians, the series in this book of the Bible. And look at what 1 Corinthians 3, verse 15 says. Paul says, do you, to the Christians in Corinth, do you not know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? In the Old Testament, the temple was a place where the Jews interacted with the living God. And guess what? You are a temple, and you interact with the living God. And this is Jesus' whole point. In prayer, you are engaging with the Spirit of God in the temple It's in us. And just as Jesus was imploring the Jews to properly enter the presence of God in the temple, so he is encouraging his followers to properly enter the presence of God in prayer. How do you engage the Spirit of God living in in you if you are a believer in Jesus? How do you do this? This is where this random verse 25 comes into play. Our theme for today about forgiveness. This is where it all comes into play. You see, this is not about getting what you want. It's about entering into prayer, knowing that you are the temple of living God. And do you know what Jesus says about entering into prayer in the temple of the living God who is living in you? The most important things he says? I'm gonna read it again. So when you stand praying, As the residence, as the temple of the living God, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive him, so that your Father in heaven may forgive your sins. As those who have replaced the temple, the proper way to enter prayer is with forgiveness. Well, now, this is hard. This is hard. Because I don't know about you, but I struggle with forgiving certain people in my life. There are certain people who have hurt me that I want to forgive, but I just can't seem to do it. It's hard to forgive, but this is the way of the gospel. This is the way of Christ. Why is it hard to forgive people? Well, it's hard, first of all, because you and I don't like pain. And we don't like people who cause us pain. For an example of this, how many of you enjoy going to the dentist? nobody enjoys going to the dentist, right? Unless you're one of those people that have no cavities and you've never sinned in your teeth, (laughs) Uh, right? So, uh, that that is not me. (laughs) I I don't like going to the dentist. The dentist hurts me. I don't like pain. I like to avoid it. I'm a chicken. Last time I had a root canal, (laughs) I, I thought the guy was going to smack me because, I mean, I'm holding onto the chair and I'm sweating and I think I about broke the arms off the chair. I don't like it. I don't like people who cause me pain. The next reason why forgiveness is hard is because you and I want justice. It's not that we just don't like pain. You and I want justice. And when someone does wrong to us, we want to hold the power of justice over them. We want to force them to, to make what was wrong right. Except we can't. Very rarely can you force someone into justice. So we look for ways to manipulate them to justice. We think if, I hold, if I'm just angry with them, if I shun them, if I cause pain back to them with, by withholding my relationship, somehow magically they'll see, oh, I've done wrong. I need to make it right. That's just foolish. But we all do it. Why is forgiveness hard? Because we want to control people. But the reality is that God is the one who is in control of justice, not us. And we just don't like to let people off the hook, do we? That's one definition of forgiveness I once heard, is that forgiveness is letting somebody off the hook. I think it's probably as good as any definition. Letting someone off. We don't want to do that. We want them to pay for how they hurt us. Forgiveness is hard. And it's hard because to pray for one's well-being, Jesus says, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. The reality is we know if we pray with an attitude of forgiveness to them that God might change us in the process. And we don't want to change. We were the ones who were hurt Why should we have to change? Why should I have to change? Why should you have to change? That person hurt you. And yet, if we forgive them, God changes us. This is why forgiveness is so hard. But Jesus is saying, if you are going to be the temple of the living God, the MO of the kingdom of God, the MO of the way God works is with forgiveness. And so how do we do this? How do we achieve prayer with forgiveness? Well, the first thing we do is we remember that we wouldn't even be able to pray if God and Jesus had not forgiven us. You see, when we hold unforgiveness against someone else, in reality what we're saying is that their sin against me is greater than my sin against God. Really? That just means you don't understand your sin against God. It just means you don't get, and I don't get, how much we have hurt God, how much we have sinned against Him. We have to remember what Jesus forgave us. It's huge. So, that guy who publicly embarrassed you, that's small. That lady who cost you your job, that's small. That spouse who was unfaithful to you or, or mean spirited to you, that's small the partner who stole your business and ruined your career, that's small. It's small in light of all that God has forgiven you and me. He forgave everything that we ever did. So we pray with forgiveness when we put ourselves in that light. We go, "Why why should I not forgive someone else when everything that God has given me? How do you pray with forgiveness? You start with remembering what Jesus did for you And then the second thing you do is make a choice. You can forgive someone and still struggle with feelings of unforgiveness. I believe that is true. You can forgive someone and still struggle with the pain of it. But you can choose to forgive someone. Because as Christians who are rational, who we are as beings created by God with rational minds, we are both... Emotional beings and intelligent beings. We have minds that God created us with, and unfortunately, we make most decisions in our life based on emotions, not on choices. We make decisions based on emotions, not intellectual facts and truth. That's how. In fact, retailers know this. I just read recently um, a blog by a, one of the retail, American retail federations that retailers go to for stuff, and they said people buy products based on eight emotions, and they listed all the emotions. And these are what drive all product decision. And if you watch a commercial, you know this is true. If you, uh, you know, the, uh, the Animal Rescue League or whatever wants you to give money to them, so they put sad pets on there because they're driving your emotions to make a choice. You know, if you go anywhere, you see happy people. They want you to feel happy. Oh, I feel. See a picture of a happy person. If I buy this product, I will be happy too. It's all driven by emotions. And yet, when we come to forgiveness, if we allow our emotions to drive us, we will never be able to forgive someone. It's only by God's Spirit that we make a choice to forgive someone, and our emotions follow along. If feelings drive everything, I can't forgive because I don't feel it. But choices drive feelings. I will forgive, and I will pray, and I will learn to love them and want their best. And I think that is the hardest part of praying for someone that has hurt you. The hardest part is that you want good to happen to them. That's what means when you pray for your enemy, you pray for the one who has hurt you or persecuted you, is you want good for them. And then that starts with a choice, <laughs> and that starts with the Spirit of God changing us. If you're harboring unforgiveness for someone, you need to ask God to help you forgive them. You do but the reality is you can make a choice to forgive and your feelings may never change, but your actions can. And this is important because if we want to live, love, and give like Jesus, forgiveness is the way of the cross. This is how we live, love, and give like Jesus. Because God's Spirit's in us, we're not our own. Because grace is always better. And because unforgiveness, it would seem, hinders our praying. So I can't tell you today that if you've been praying something and your prayer wasn't answered the way you wanted, that it's because of unforgiveness in your heart. I cannot say that to you. I don't always know those things. But I can say it might be. I mean, Jesus is pretty clear about this and pretty repetitive about it, that we should forgive. So we're going to pray with forgiveness in our heart. And this is how we come before our Father and it is okay to confess to him, I'm not feeling the forgiveness today, but I want to. Help me. I, I will close with this. Uh, 23 years ago, my wife and I got married. Um, I was very young. I was 21 years old. 21 years old. She was 19 we're standing in this beautiful church in Rockford, Illinois. It's a huge pipe organ. It was gorgeous. We're standing up there, and Clarissa's childhood pastor flew in to do the wedding. He meant a lot to Clarissa, and, uh, and I didn't really know him that well, but I remember sta- <laughs> standing uh, in the back with him, beforehand being terrified and saying to him, would you please pray for me? And he looked at me and laughed and said, sure. But we're standing up there, both of us before him, at, right at the, towards the end of the ceremony. He's getting ready to pronounce us husband and wife. It's this beautiful thing. And he looks at us with tears in his eyes that are coming down. And he says, and he quotes from Ephesians 4, he says, be kind to one another, tender hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. And at the time I thought, oh, that's so nice. He likes us so much that he's shedding, like the moment is caught. he's shedding a tear for us. Oh, that's so sweet. And 23 years later, I'm pretty convinced that that tear had very little to do with us because he knew how hard forgiveness is. And he knew the pain that had cost him in his own life to forgive people. But he knew it was better on the other side. God's temple is in you if you believe in Jesus Christ. If you have experienced faith in him for the forgiveness of your sins, his temple is in you. You have his Holy Spirit. Therefore, pray with the Spirit of God, the temple of God, and pray with you. Forgiveness.